And even as Paul addresses the nation of Israel as a whole, he will establish some important points regarding salvation. He's, he's going to establish some things that are, that are eternal truths that matter. From, he's going to talk about the fact that from the seed of Abraham, God chose a nation. And that nation has so claim to the promises of God by virtue of their relationship to Abraham. But Paul establishes the idea that God's promises were never intended for everyone who descended from Abraham after the flesh. He makes the same point in Galatians. It was not the, those that descended from Abraham after the flesh, but those that are related to Abraham in faith. Amen. That's why the church extends beyond an, an, a Jewish bride to a Gentile bride, to everyone, to whosoever will. Because I am a child of Abraham. I am, I am in that same lineage of that same promise by my faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so it was never the fleshly lineage of Abraham that would be the sole inheritor of the blessings and promises and favor of God. If that was the case... If all it took was to be a descendant of Abraham, then Ishmael would have never been rejected. Esau would have never been rejected. Those men have the, the ability to claim, and all of their seed and all of their children have the ability to claim that they descended from Abraham, but none of them can lay hold of the promise that was given to the Jews, not on the basis of their fleshly inheritance. They, the only claim that we have to the promise of God is on the basis of faith. It was faith that Abraham had that, that brought him into the blessing and the promise of God. And it was the, the, the family of the faith, the lineage of the faithful that brought them further into the promises of God. And this is what he's going to tell the Israelites as we go through chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. This isn't based on the works of your flesh. This isn't based on what you have done or what heritage you can claim. Amen. This is based on your own faith and whether or not you had. And what, what does faith mean? Faith means obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to say, I believe. It's another thing to say, I, I believe enough to do something about it. Amen. I use illustration often and and. You've heard it before, but if I were to take a $100 bill out of my hands and out of my wallet and lay it here on this pulpit and tell you the first person that came and, and got a hold of it while I was preaching, you can have it. It's yours. If you really believe that, I wouldn't get another sentence out of my mouth. I wouldn't get to the next pause. Somebody could use a $100 bill. Amen? And if you really believe that by coming and getting a hold of it, you could have it, you'd be out, there would be a foot race to the pulpit. Amen? You can't tell me you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're not willing to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's faith. Faith yields obedience. And it's obedience uh, that even in one point in Romans that, that Paul refers to faith's obedience, a possessive of faith. Faith possesses an obedience, a, a, a nature that says I will respond and I will react and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with that which I now believe. Amen? So... We're going we're gonna to be looking at all of that unfold across Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Now, I'll say this, one more introductory comment, and then we'll kind of get into the text this morning. But some people use these chapters 
to teach the doctrine of predestination or a doctrine that they call unconditional election. That false teaching posits the idea that God chooses on his own who will be saved and who will be lost. And he doesn't, there's no reference there to human faith or human choice that, that God decides that you really don't have any, any ability to determine whether or not you're going to obey God. It was decided before you were born that God just unconditionally chooses who's lost and who's saved before they're ever brought in this world. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the book of Romans teaches. And these three chapters that we're about to, to, to deal with, they don't deal with individual salvation. They're talking about the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel rejected God. And they're talking about uh, that, that national rejection of Jesus Christ. They're not talking about individual salvation, and they're definitely not talking about individual predestination. Amen? And so we'll see that, and I'll try to address that as we go through the scriptures that are used in that context that are taken wrongly out of context to teach something that's not right as we go through the book of Romans. Amen? These chapters are about the nation of Israel as a whole. They proclaim God's sovereign nature that he can choose to do whatever he will choose to do. He can reject the Jews and choose the Gentiles if he so pleases. That is his right. But they also reinforce the fact that every individual is a free moral agent. You choose whether or not you walk with God. You choose whether or not you obey God. You choose whether or not you surrender to God. It's your choice. Amen. Now, with that in mind, I, I'm going to, I really wanted to take a bigger bite of chapter 9 this morning, but I, I felt compelled to the Holy Ghost after I started studying just to stop a few verses in. There's a reason for that. We're going to look at the first three verses of chapter 9 this morning. The reason I'm just taking the first three verses is because in, encapsulated in that short thought, and it's not even the completeness of a thought. If I was going to take it all the way to the end of the thought, I'd go to the end of verse 5, and I, it's really what I intended to do this morning, but I felt like the Holy Ghost stopped me. Because encapsulated in that short passage that we're going to look at this morning is the heartbeat of Paul's burden for his nation, for his people, for the lost. And I want somehow, if I don't get anything else done on this Sunday morning, in the next few moments, I want somehow to convey to you the depth of his burden, the depth of the burden that Paul had for the nation of Israel. Before we spend three chapters talking about uh, the people of God that rejected the Savior that was sent to them, I want to take three verses and I want to talk about the love and the compassion of the man of God that was reaching for that lost people. And I hope that somehow in the next few moments it challenges your heart and mine to become more impassioned about seeing a lost world reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we'll break it down as we go this morning. It says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and Continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Amen. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Having com completed chapter 8 on a high note, Paul now turns to the burden that he carries for the nation of Israel. The, these very first three verses convey the, the very personal nature of this portion of the book of Romans. This isn't just about a people who've rejected God. This is about the kinsmen of Paul. This is about those that are his kinsmen after the flesh, those that are his brothers after the flesh that have rejected this wonderful salvation message. And Paul is, in writing these next three chapters, he's not just writing uh, about theological ideas that exist somewhere in a classroom, theological theories that, that, that scholars can study and can can, can contemplate on and can go back and forth on. He's writing about the very passion of his heart. There is a world that is around him that is lost. There are people that he cares about, people that he has compassion towards that are that if something doesn't change, they're going to lose their soul. They're going to end up under the very harsh judgment of God because of their rejection of the mercy and the grace of God. And so even as God is using Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. He, he is still compelled by a strong, persistent, personal burden to see the Jews saved, to see his kinsmen after the flesh saved, to, to see those that share the, 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 the heritage of Abraham be able to come to the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the recognition of what God has done for them. Paul knows like nobody else knows how strong the Jews feel about this. He, he knows like nobody else does the, 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 the depth of the rejection. And he knows the power of a conversion. He knows what happens when you come to grips with the grace of God, when the love of God reaches a down and, and changes your direction. And what Paul desires more than anything else in this world is that he could see his nation, his people, the kinsmen after his flesh, had that same experience that he has had. Paul begins to express that desire with a very emphatic assertion of the truthfulness of what he's about to say. This passage is, is unique. It's not doesn't stand alone, but it's a very rare thing in Scripture for Paul to be this emphatic in a declaration of sincerity. Uh, it's not uncommon for him to say, I'm telling the truth. And it's not uncommon for him to say, I'm not telling a lie. But it is uncommon for him to say in the same statement, I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an intensity there. There is a there's a forcefulness there. There's an emphasis there. What he uses the positive. I'm telling the truth. And he turns the negative and, and reinforces it. I'm, I'm not lying. This is, this is how I really feel. This is the depth of my emotion. This is, this is really coming out of my heart. This isn't just something that I'm writing to placate somewhere. This isn't something, uh, someone, this isn't something I'm just trying to smooth over the feelings. Uh, you know, Paul is accused because of being the apostle to the Gentiles because he spends so much of his time reading 
reaching those that are outside of the lineage of Abraham. He's been accused of being anti-Jewish, of being uh, against those that are the seed of Abraham. And perhaps he's this emphatic because he wants people that read the letter, Jews that are going to read the letter to know, I'm telling the absolute, this is the truth. Uh, this is the burden of my heart. This is this comes from deep within. This isn't just something I'm saying just to get by. I'm not just trying to convince you of something. This is how I really feel. This is how deeply I feel on the subject. And he reinforces, reinforces that by saying that he has a clear conscience about what he's about to say. This next three chapters are flowing out of a clear conscience. He has a, he has a good understanding of what he's about to say, and, and, and he has a good, clear conscience about it. As a matter of fact, the Holy Ghost, the indwelling Spirit of God, that presence of God that has filled his life when he was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God bears witness with his conscience that he's blameless in what he's about to say. In other words, this Paul's about to declare the the sincerity of his heart, but he's not, and he feels that he's right in doing so, but he's not gauging his rightness or his correctness just on his own conscience. Can I tell you that your human reasoning can sometimes be flawed? When, when you're relying on what you feel is right, and what you feel like you, you've got grounds for and how you feel like you've been abused or mistreated or how you feel like you can, you can feel this way and it's right for you to feel, especially when you're dealing with a subject that is passionate to you, something that really matters to you, like Paul was passionate about the salvation of the Jews. He, he, he doesn't just go on the basis of my conscience, but he also goes on the basis of the Holy Ghost bears witness with my conscience. I believe there's a lesson to be learned there. Sometimes we, we have the very strong conviction that we're right about a thing. We, we're the one that's been wrong. We've been offended in some way. Somebody has done something that, that we didn't deserve, and, and we feel justified in our actions. We feel justified in harboring some kind of bitterness in our heart. We feel justified in, in turning a cold shoulder to them and cutting them off or in being rude to them or, or whatever else that we do. The, the, the way of a man seems right to the man, and our conscience tells us you're, you're right in doing this. You, you can feel good about this. You, you've been wronged, and because you've been wronged, uh, your conscience reinforces your conviction that, that you've got a right to act out. You've got a right to, to, to hold a little bitterness in your heart. You've got a right to, to, to say rude things and not feel an ounce of regret because, bless God, they wronged you. I'm the only one that ever felt that way, me and Brother Ryan. See, your human conscience agrees with you. you. You had the right to feel that way. But Paul adds another dimension, another standard of judgment that is applicable in those situations where you're acting out of the conviction of your conscience. What does the Holy Ghost have to say about it? What does the indwelling Spirit of God, does that bear witness with your conscience? Is the Holy Ghost 
comfortable with the notion of harboring bitterness in your heart? Is a Holy Ghost comfortable with the notion of keeping resentment in your spirit? Is is the Holy Ghost okay with the idea that well I, I, I'm just gonna I, I'm just gonna cut them off? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna they they treated me that way and I'm gonna treat them the way they treated me. And does the Spirit of God within you does it bear witness to the rightness? of your conscience. There are a lot of people who have strong personal conviction that they're right. They've been wronged and they've been hurt and they've been harmed. Can I tell you, honey, you're not the only one that's been hurt and harmed and wronged. And can I also tell you that Jesus Christ didn't give you what you deserved. He didn't measure out to you the measure that you fully deserved. He didn't even give you a fraction of it. He gave you mercy where you deserved judgment. He gave you love where you deserved rejection. And if you consult the Holy Ghost, whenever you find that that human conviction rises up, that human conscience and says, you know, I'm right in doing this. If you consult the Holy Ghost, you'll find that what's right is that I would I would do not what is deserved, but that I would do unto others as I would have be done unto me. That I treat my brother like I'd want my brother to do. I want mercy when I don't deserve it. I want understanding when I don't deserve it. Sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I, 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 I get everything all out of order. And whenever I make a mistake... Whenever I, I unintentionally hurt somebody's feelings, Brother Anderson, I want them to understand I didn't mean it. I, I didn't intend it. I wasn't trying to trot on your toes. I wasn't trying to, to, to shut you. I didn't mean to forget to shake your hand, or I didn't mean to forget to, to, to mention what you were going through. It was it just uh, everything was going on, and my mind was cluttered, and I had all kinds of stuff, and, and I, it just slipped my mind, and I, and I, I want to be understood. But if I want to be understood, then I've got to be willing to understand. If I want to be shown compassion, then I've got to be willing to show a little compassion. Amen. So Paul puts that, that double standard out there. that uh, Not double standard, but doubly reinforced standard. Amen. Not just what the conviction of my heart says, but what does the Holy Ghost have to say? Before you act out, on your personal conviction, on the conscience that is within you that says, I'm right, you ought to turn to prayer and weigh your conviction against the Holy Ghost and hear what God speaks to your life. Before you act out of anger, before you act out of harshness, before you act out of resentment and bitterness, you ought to stop and carry that need to the throne of God and say, Lord, before I say something I'm going to regret, before I burn a bridge that I don't need to burn, Lord, would you let me know what the Holy Ghost has to say? That's the Christian thing to do. Amen? Amen. I know I didn't get quit preaching and got right down to meddling. That's okay. That's my job. Verse 2 says that I have great heaviness. And continual sorrow in my heart. When Paul thinks about his kinsmen after the flesh, when he thinks about the nation of Israel, he said, I have great heaviness 
and continual sorrow. That, that sorrow, it, it's a continual, it's an ongoing thing. It's not just a, a passing emotion. This isn't something that he, he just, just kind of hits him for a moment and it's gone. It's a grief at, at the condition of his nation. It's a grief at the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jews that, that, that has stirred him, that is continual, that he can't get away from. I said before, having already been involved in the wholesale nationalistic rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and having been converted from that wrong to the glorious truth of who Jesus really is, Paul is intimately familiar with the spiritual condition of Israel. He is intimately familiar with the depth of their rejection of Jesus Christ and the depth with which they have they've turned away and they there, 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 there isn't even any open door to go back and with the with the, the heart that has totally rejected what God has done he is familiar with that he's intimately familiar with that he's been there amen he was a chief persecutor he was one that that took the letters to go out and try to try to destroy this thing called the church these disciples of Jesus Christ whom he had personally rejected he knows what it is he knows how deep that rejection goes he knows how complete and total that that their loss is how complete and total uh they've rejected jesus christ and he knows that that's going to lead to judgment he knows it's going to come to the condemnation of the very souls and he said i grieve for them there's sorrow in my heart continually paul knows what it is to be walking down the road with his conviction with his conscience telling him he's in the right with the conviction of his heart saying he's doing good. And for the power of God to step into that place and that light shine from heaven until Paul is disoriented and he's blinded and, and this voice speaks and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he doesn't even know who's speaking anymore. And he says, who are you? And what he expects to hear is I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be the one that you worship with all of your heart. He knew who was speaking, but he never expected the answer that he heard. I am Jesus. I am the one that you have persecuted. There was revelation in that moment. There was understanding in that moment. You don't find any more uh, of Paul trying to, trying to plead his case. You don't find him trying to assert the rightfulness of what he's doing. Instead, you find him saying, what do I need to do? How do I get right? That's what he wants. That's what he's hungry for. He wants the nation of Israel, his brethren, his kinsmen after the flesh to come to that, that same moment of conversion, that same moment of revelation, that same moment of understanding of who Jesus is. He knows the depth of the depravity and he knows the, the greatness of their need and it brings him great sorrow. So he says in verse 3, For I could wish that my self were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's burden for the lost, for the Jews, is so strong 
that he said, I could wish myself accursed from Christ. That word accursed is, is the word anathema. It, it's made its way into the English as, as a word that represents being excommunicated or cut off from God. In the context that, that Paul is using it, speaking of eternal salvation. I, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for the nation of Israel. And we started this whole passage with very strong, very emphatic language, very repeatedly saying how, how, how convinced he is, how convicted he is, how strongly he feels this. And now we see the, the depth of his emotion, the, the depth of his involvement with this burden to see the lost saved, this burden to see Israel come to church, come to truth. He said, if, if, I, could, if I could make a difference, if, I, if there was something I could do, I would do anything that it would take. I would even wish myself to be cut off from Christ for all of eternity if it would cause my brethren, my kinsmen after the flesh to have that same experience that I've had. Now, before we put too much into that, I want to consider what Paul's saying. If there was some self-sacrifice that he could make, if there was something that he could do that would result in the saving of the Jews, that would result in changing the course of the nation of Israel, just like his course was changed on that Damascus road. If there was something that he could do that would result in the saving of his nation, then Paul's saying he would willingly make that sacrifice. He would willingly pay any price. He would willingly do anything that he could do, even to the point of condemning his own soul to hell. Now remember the conviction of truthfulness behind this. Paul has emphatically stated, this is genuinely how I feel. This, this isn't something I, I'm just saying. This is how I feel. This is the, the burden of my heart. And he said, I would go so far as to be cut off from God if that would result in the saving of my kinsmen after the flesh. What he said was, I could wish. You see, Paul knows that his life cannot, could never atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, his life couldn't atone for anybody's sins. The rejection of his own salvation would have absolutely no impact even if he could, even if he could condemn himself to hell by, by in some effort to save the nation of Israel, he couldn't do it. There, there, his own life and his own soul isn't a, isn't a, a, a value. It isn't a, a price that could ever meet the price for the sins of the nation of Israel. So Paul doesn't say, I have wished. He doesn't say, I want this to happen. What he says is, this is how far I would go. This is the extreme limit. This is as far as I can think of. This is as, as far as I can imagine. This is how far I would go if it would make a difference. If I could somehow 
change the way things are. Paul understood that he couldn't do anything in and of himself that would ever add to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He, he understood there wasn't any, any self-sacrifice that was ever going to incre increase the effectiveness of the blood that flowed down Calvary. There was nothing that he could do that was going to add to what God had already done at the cross for the purpose of saving all of humanity, including the Jews. But he said, if, if that's what it took, if, if somehow that would do it, if somehow that would accomplish it, that, that, that's, how, that's how far I would be willing to go. That's how the price I would be willing to pay. He understands fully Jesus took the place of all sinners. He, he stood in our stead, and Paul couldn't do that if he wanted to. He couldn't lay down his life for ours. He, he couldn't lay down his life for anybody. Amen. It wouldn't make any eternal difference. But what he's saying is, if that's what needed to be done, if, if that's the price that was demanded, if that's the sacrifice that was required, I'm ready. I'm willing. I want you just for a moment to get a glimpse of the heartbeat of this, this apostle to the Gentiles, this, this great missionary, this one who, who, who changed the, the face of the world that he was living in. I want you to get a grasp of how deeply he cared for the lost souls around him, particularly of the nation of Israel. I would do anything, he said. I would go to any lengths. I would pay any price. I'm not holding anything back, even to my, the salvation of my own soul. I'd pay any price. Salvation was not, salvation for the Jews was not in Paul's hands. It was entirely up to them to either accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was their decision. They had to come to that moment of realization. They had to come to that moment of revelation on their own. Uh, they had to come to that place where they accepted that indeed he is Jesus Christ and he is the Messiah and he is the Savior of the world. That's not a decision that Paul can make. They, they would have to repent of their own sins. They're going to have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. They're going to have to yield their own life to the, the power of God and let the Holy Ghost come and abide within them. They're going to have to be baptized in the Spirit. Amen. He can't do that for them. He, he doesn't have that ability, but if if he could, what this verse demonstrates is the depth of Paul's burden for Israel. His, his statement of his willingness to suffer rejection by God on behalf of his nation has, has been likened by scholars to the intercessory prayer of Moses that he prayed after the children of Israel had worshipped the golden calf. You'll remember back in the book of Exodus, God's anger was kindled against him. Moses comes off the mountain with the commandments that God's given him. He's been in the presence of God. There's been that fellowship up there. And then, then Moses comes down there. The, he gets to the camp, and the people have turned their back on God. They, they've erected a golden calf, and they've not just made a, an idol to worship it, but they have said of that idol, this is Jehovah, this is God who brought you out of Egypt. There wasn't even this is a God. This is this golden calf. This is the image of the one that brought you out of Egypt. And God's anger was kindled against them. And he was getting ready. He told Moses, I'm going to wipe the whole bunch out. 
We'll start all over, just me and you. But Moses boldly intervened. Moses, in a moment of complete self-sacrifice, told God in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32 that if, if you can't forgive them, then you should go ahead and reject me too. He said, blot me out of your book. If you're going to write them off, write me off too. God responded by saying to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that's who I'm going to write out of my book. That's who I'm going to blot out. What he was telling Moses was the same thing that Paul already knew and understood. Sin and salvation is a personal issue. It's between you and God. I, I will answer for what I preach to you. I will answer for the instruction and guidance that I give to you. I will not answer for the decisions you make. The choice is in between you and God. You've got to decide. You've got to follow him. You've got to have uh, that heartfelt conviction to surrender your life to him. It's a personal thing. And what God said to Moses is the same thing that Paul understood. God's going to blot out those who have sinned and have rejected the mercy of God and have not found grace in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. But he will not reject the whole nation. And he did not reject the whole nation with Moses. As a matter of fact, what he did instead was he sent a plague. And he meted out individual judgment among the people. The same holds true of the Jews. Even though Paul is bemoaning the status of the Jews as a nation, even though these three chapters are going to deal with a, a lamentation of the, the, uh, uh, the fact that the majority of the Jews, the majority of the nation have rejected Jesus Christ. They are in the condition that Paul said, I would put myself in. They are a curse. They are anathema. They are accursed from God. They are accursed from Christ. They are separated from the grace of God. That's where the majority of the Jews are. But that doesn't mean that individual Jews can't be saved. That doesn't mean that individual Paul himself is a witness of the fact. His, his very testimony is a testimony of the fact that God can save even the, the, the ones with the hardest heart among them. He said, if he saved me, if he's used me, if, he, if, he's, if he's put his grace and his anointing in my life, that he can do it for anybody. And so his message is not... That God has rejected the whole of the nation of Israel, but the whole of the nation of Israel has rejected God. That does not mean that individuals can't come to salvation. Indeed, we'll find Paul throughout the word of God, throughout his journeys, even as God takes him to Gentile peoples and Gentile nations and Gentile cities. We'll find him reaching everywhere he can. In every city he goes to, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Jews. He goes to those that are his kinsmen after the flesh. And he has converts there. They're those that come to the grace of God. So Paul, like Moses, cried out to God with a burden for his people, saying, I have such a burden for my fellow countrymen, my kinsmen after the flesh, that I would go to any length to see them saved. On this Sunday morning, I want you to consider the gravity of Paul's words. Every one of us would do well today to examine our own burden that we have for the lost. 
not just your lost family, not just those that you're close to, but your burden for the nameless man or woman behind the checkout counter at the grocery store, the lost in this city or your community or those that are around you at work. Every one of us would do well to examine our burden for the lost in the light of Paul's strong conviction. Are we as serious about revival as he was? Are we as serious about reaching the lost, about reaching this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ as he was? Paul was willing to go so far as to be personally cut off from God if it would cause his nation. Not, he's not naming names of his lost loved ones. He's not naming names of just a select few. I'd be willing to go so far for them. But for the whole of the country, for the whole of a lost city, people he doesn't know, nameless faces in a crowd, I'd be willing to reject everything that I have that they could come to salvation, that they come to know the grace of God, that they could be delivered from that, that eternal destruction that is coming to them, that they could be delivered from the judgment of God. It was a completely selfless conviction. It was a completely self-sacrificing burden for the lost. That's the standard that we need to measure ourselves against. I want nothing more this morning than just to lift up to you the words of Paul and say, how do we measure up next to that? Sometimes we get so caught up in the petty things in this life that we have, we have absolutely no idea of what really matters. Things that have no eternal value at all captivate our attention to the point that we neglect the things that really matter. Men and women that you and I deal with every single day are lost, bound for a devil's hell, headed for the terrible judgment of God. If somebody doesn't reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ before it's too late, you've got to somehow get a glimpse. You've got to somehow let it touch your heart, the burden. Our nation is racing headlong towards the judgment of God. Our nation is racing headlong towards uh, the wrath of God. And all too often we're content to remain apathetic and, and uncaring about what's happening around us. Having absolutely no regard for the judgment that has come. And surely we're aware that the cultural landscape of America is changing. Surely we are aware that this nation is embracing the wholesale rejection of God, that this nation is, is letting go of any biblical standard of morality and righteousness and godliness. Daily, our world is descending deeper and deeper into the darkness and depravity of sin. And that knowledge should break our hearts. That knowledge should stir us to discomfort. It should weigh heavily on us. It should be like the knowledge that Paul had that his kinsmen, his nation was lost. If ever there was a time that the church needed to shake off a sense of complacency and apathy about the lost and be gripped with a burden, this is that time.
this is that hour. This world desperately needs a few men and women who, like Paul, are willing to put the pursuits of this world on hold and pour themselves out on an intercessory altar praying for the salvation of their soul. This world needs a few men and women that are willing to give of themselves until it hurts and are willing to say, whatever the cost, I'm willing to pay it. Whatever it takes, I'm, I'm willing to do it. Whatever it was requires of me, whatever, even as far as I can imagine, God, even beyond what is impossible, there's nothing that I would hold back to see my world, to see my city, to see the people I work with saved. That's the kind of burden that we're talking about. This community is full of folks who are blind to their own spiritual condition. Folks who are held captive by the bondage of sin have been there so long, they don't think there's any escape. They think this is just the way it has to be. This is the way it was for daddy. This is the way it was for granddaddy. This is the way it was for my older brother, my uncles, and my aunts. And they were all drug addicts just like me. This is just the way it has to be. Amen. They need somebody who cares enough to tell them it doesn't have to be that way. They need somebody who will love, somebody who doesn't even know them, but would love them enough to tell them, you don't have to stay the way you are. You don't have to live in that cycle of brokenness. You don't have to live in that cycle of bondage. You don't have to live out generational curses from one generation to the next. You don't have to be like you always have been. There is hope. Uh, there is salvation. There is a better way. Somebody that would care. Somebody that would love those who have never loved you in return. Somebody that would give to those who could never give anything back in return. Somebody that would be willing to lay their life down, lay their, all of their pursuits and their passions aside and say nothing matters more to me than reaching the lost. One of these days, we're going to stand in eternity next to men like Paul and Moses. I wonder if we'll be able to say that we carried the same compassion for the lost that they had. I wonder if we'll be able to say that we had that same fervent desire to see our world saved. You see, I could have pressed on. Verse 5 is a very strong oneness scripture, and we'll get there next week. But I couldn't bypass this. Because when, when we read the impassioned plea of Paul, when we see the lengths that he'd be willing to go to see his nation saved, it should convict us. It should, shouldn't be room for anything else, Elder. It ought to stir our hearts. It ought to move us to an altar. It ought to drive us to a place of prayer. It ought to compel us to get busy in the harvest to endeavor to make a difference before it's too late. Our world is racing headlong towards eternal judgment. The question is, do we care? What will we do? What price are we willing to pay to snatch as many as we can from the fires of hell? Listen, hell's real, honey. It really, there, there is a place where the worm never dies. There is a place of eternal con condemnation and judgment. 
there is a place where you don't want to go and you don't want your children to go and you don't want even your worst enemy, you don't want to go to hell. It needs to get a hold of us. It needs to grip our hearts. We've got truth. It's time we did something with what we have. Would you stand with me? It was a stormy night. It was one of those nights when the wind was just howling. It seemed to want to push the car off the road. And the, the driving rain was ripping from the night sky. And great sheets that flew across the roadway in a horizontal manner and parallel to the ground. The darkness of the storm was so intense that the headlights of the car seemed to be swallowed by the inky blackness of the night. It was one of those nights where... You can barely see the center line. You can barely see the yellow lines. You, you Half the time, you're guessing where you're going. You're just doing your best to keep it between the lines and make it home safe. And every few minutes, a stark, brilliant flash of lightning would light up the whole world, bring everything into, into absolute clarity and detail everything would be seen and for a moment you could catch a glimpse of everything that is around you and then it would instantly be plunged back into darkness ultimately it was one of those flashes of lightning that saved his life you see he saw at the last minute in the flash of the lightning he saw that the bridge was gone Water was up and washed away the road. And he managed to stop his car just in time. Just before he slid off the precipice and into the mighty raging river. When he backed his car up, he sat there on the side of the road for a few moments, trembling with emotion. As he thought about what could have been, Brother Donnie, if he hadn't stopped in time. How badly it could have turned out. And in a shaken state, he got out of his car and he, he, he kind of got to walking around a little bit trying to see how bad the damage was and how, how terrible the situation was, contemplating what can we do here, how, 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 can we, how can we make a difference here. And all of a sudden, the storm let up for just a moment, that, that those kind of quiet spots that roll in in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm and he could hear coming down the road the unmistakable sound of the nightly passenger bus on its way to the next big town. And he knew instantly, Brother Anderson, that bus is full of people. And there's a driver that can't see any better than I could see. There's a storm that has washed out the bridge and there's danger. If that bus gets to the place that I was at before it sees the, the danger that lies ahead, he may not be able to stop in time. It takes a lot longer to stop that bus than it takes to stop my car. So forgetting about the storm and forgetting about any risk to himself, he took off running up the road, right in the middle of the road. Waving his arms, screaming against the howling wind, stop, stop, before it's too late, stop. In that moment, his safety became secondary.
in that moment, that nameless hero decided, if I lose my life in this endeavor, it's worth it. Because those people are going to be lost if I don't do something to stop the situation. That's the kind of passion that Paul had. That's what he's saying when he says, I, I, would, I would pray, I could pray that I'd be cursed from God, cut off from Christ. He's saying, when I look at the world and I see the lost and I see what's going to happen in that moment, I don't matter anymore. In that moment, all the petty stuff in my life takes a, a second uh, a fiddle that gets in the back seat. It, it backs up against all that. What really matters is that somehow I can reach them before it's too late. What really matters is that somehow I could get a hold of somebody. I could stop the, the course of their life before they go plunging into that precipice where they're lost forever. The question this morning is what will you and I do? In the same situation. Where we get wrapped up in ourselves and decide, well, I sure hope they stop too, but you know, I'm not. I'm just not willing to run down the road in the middle of the night, take the chance that they don't see me and run me over. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of gently wave from the roadside. I'll find an easier way, a path that requires much less of me. Or will we throw caution in the wind and say whatever it takes? We deal with it. You know, it's a, it's a great story, but we deal with this in a real world reality day in and day out. You'll encounter somebody the next 24 hours that God's going to open a door of ministry for you. But you've got to put yourself out there. It involves some personal risk. It involves putting yourself in a place of discomfort. It involves stepping out a little bit and maybe getting out of your comfort zone, out of your shell. How much is it worth to see a soul saved? How much is it worth? Paul will never reach the nation. He'll never reach the bulk of the Jews. But he'll never quit trying. And every one that he pulls from the fire is one more that he doesn't have to mourn over. 